once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. American spy Nathan Hale was captured and executed by the British at New York City in September of 1776. He is remembered as saying before his death, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. We all have but one life, but are we aware of what we're giving it for? Teaching team member David McNeely brings us this message entitled Only One Life, which covers 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and James chapter 4, verses 4 and 7 through 10. Thank you for joining us today. We are on the July 4th weekend, and I am so thankful to be a part of this country as are you. We enjoy freedoms here in this country that many others throughout the world do not enjoy. I will not apologize for that. I am thankful for the freedoms that we have right here. We are free primarily because men and women throughout history have said that serving our country is more important than keeping me alive. It's more important that I join up with the mission so that others can enjoy freedom for as many years as God would give them on earth as opposed to me simply doing what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it. They have sacrificed their very selves for the betterment of others. And it got me to thinking, what kind of a life is led like that? What kind of a person has the foresight to say, I'm going to live a life in which it really just isn't about me. I'm going to go a direction. And when I get in that direction, I'm going to stay focused in on that direction. While I was Preparing a message actually for December, I stumbled across this passage as I was reading further in. So it was in 1 John earlier in chapter 2, and I kept reading, and I found myself getting distracted by this particular passage, and I finally realized this is another sermon that needs to be preached, so I shelved it and then said, I think I'm preaching on this weekend, and I think it'll work well here. So for months, I've been thinking about this. I've only been preparing it for about a week now, but I've been thinking about it a lot, and I remember Freedom is worth it. And, and I agree with everything Randy said. So thankful for the freedom of our country, yet I am even more grateful for the freedom that Christ has offered to us. And in the context of this morning, I want you to hear this. Christ offers freedom. He offers freedom for all who would come to him, who would throw their hands up in the air and surrender the controls of their very lives and say, I am no longer calling the shots, but you are calling the shots. And when we do that, he provides freedom from this particular world, from a love of this particular world, and he provides freedom to a love of God. And what God does with the life who is wholly devoted to him, he takes that life and he uses it to the, to the core. The same thing could be said of us that could be said of David and Acts, that he fulfilled his purpose in his generation. Only Jesus does that. Not hard work, not diligence, all those things are important, but Jesus takes a life that is wholly devoted to him. Flawed, deeply, deeply flawed. He takes that life and he does something of eternal significance with. Is there anyone here who would not want to get to the end of your life and say the same thing that Paul said, my life is being poured out like a drink offering? Is there anyone who would not want to know that my life counted for something everlasting. We all want that. We all long for that. We long to get to the end of our journey here on earth and hear the words from our heavenly father. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now. C.T. Studd was a cricketer, meaning he played cricket. I've never played 
cricket. But I just wanted to say the word cricketeer. He played it in England. He played it for his college. He actually got very good at it, and something happened along the way. He came to faith in Jesus, and God changed his heart from the inside. He turned him into a new man, and he began to turn his attention not just towards cricket, uh, cricketeering, not because, that's, not because that's bad, but because he began to be called toward an eternal purpose, and he wrote a particular poem. And the only reason I know about that poem is because I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, where a man who was a pastor at that time, he is the mentor to my father. At the death of Dr. Robert J. Austinson, my father wrote a letter. We all called him Dr. O. My dad called him Bob. At his funeral, my dad had this letter that was read, and the letter starts out like this. Bob O. is the godliest man I have ever known. Now, growing up, I didn't get to hear the sermons in the same way that those who had a redeemed soul, those who had spiritually awake ears would hear. I heard it through the lens of a pretty self-absorbed kid. And so my spiritual life was not going at that point. But I remember him saying two lines in a particular poem over and again. He must have said it a dozen, if not two dozen times in my tenure there uh, from 1978 when we got there to when Bobo left in 19. 87. I heard him say these two lines, and it came from this poem. This poem is written by C.T. Studd, the former cricketer, when he began to give his life to Christ. Listen to this and tell me this wouldn't be true, something that's stirring uh, in your soul even as we speak. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. My friends, you have one life. You have but one life to live on this globe. 
We all have 24 hours in a day. How we choose to invest that, the direction that we face, the, the place that we walk to, the person that we walk to determines how well our life is lived. So I'm about to give us some instruction. It's going to sound, when we take it from the scripture, as if I'm saying, do this and don't do this and do this and don't do this. But here's what you need to hear above all. Ultimately this morning, you've got to hear this. The direction of your life determines everything. So walk Godward. And trust him with the results. If you have your Bibles, open with me to 1 John. We'll be reading in 1 John chapter 2. And then also we'll flip over real quick and go to James chapter 4. And I apologize, I sent the notes in incorrectly. It's not James 4 verse 3. It's actually James 4 verse 4. So uh, my apologies for that. 1 John chapter 2, read verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, as I thought about uh, this particular message and thought about preparing it, um, I thought of all kinds of ways that I might be able to come up with a good illustration and make it a little bit cute so that we can laugh, so that I can soften the blow for us. But my friends, here's the bottom line. This is difficult, and there is no way around this text. There's no way that I'm aware of in which I can make this a little bit more palatable for us. The text just simply says this. It's the first command given in all of 1 John. The text says, do not love the world. James says, if you are a friend to the world, you are an enemy of God. I don't know how to soften that. And praise God, God is not asking me to soften it. In order to understand what both John and James are saying, who are speaking on some things that Jesus had already said earlier, we need to understand two terms in particular. Number one, we need to understand what love is. When he says, do not love the world, what he is not referring to is the same love that he referred to in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, in which he's talking about love for the believers or love for saints, love for brothers and sisters in Christ. The love of those, love of others that he's talking about in chapter 2 is a love that gives value to rather than extracts value from. It's a love that is giving rather than taking. It's a love that is selfless rather than selfish. He's not talking about that kind of love. The other kind of love he's talking about I just described. It's the love that is only interested in what I can get from you. We see that in very young relationships, don't we? It was certainly true of me. When I first entered into a relationship with Judith, I was primarily, first and foremost, just simply attracted to her because she is hot. Saw her walk by and I went, Lord, I think you're leading me to talk to her. (laughs) 
And in the early stages of our relationship, it really was, I, I wanted to be around her because of the way that she made me feel. Now, praise God that the Lord is not done with me and I am growing now to where that love is becoming more and more. I'm trying to give rather than just simply to take from. Love. The second term we have to understand, though, is the world. What does he mean by the world? Because the world is used several times. John himself, and that's all we're going to do is focus in on how John uses the term. He uses it to talk about the literal globe. He uses it to talk about the inhabitants of the world. He uses it to talk about several things, but all of those are good and right. That's not what he's referring to here. What he's referring to here is the system that we operate that is separate from God. I'm going to give you a formal definition here in a little bit, okay? But, But this is what you need to sit on. He is talking not about the good in the world. He's talking about the evil that is set apart from, divorced from God. So with that in mind, what I want to do is I want to give you first a a caution. Then I want to give you a reminder. And then I want to give you an insight as we move along in this particular text to keep it in the back of your mind. First, a caution. Do not demonize all earthly things. Do not do that. All earthly things are not of the devil. Okay, two things that will clearly be in heaven is Alabama football and North Carolina basketball. <laughs> so I'm talking about, let's talk afterwards. It's good. All right, football is not bad. Basketball is not bad. Do not demonize those things that maybe we have come up with and created bridges that have been built by humans. Those are not bad and evil. He's not saying Hate those things. Do not demonize all earthly things. Second, remember that God actually loves his creation. At the end of every day, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. You and I walk out to a mountain and we say, oh, that is beautiful. And God says, that's right, I did it. I enjoy it. God smiles just as much as we smile. God loves his creation, which includes people. When he says don't love the world, what he's not saying is don't love people. That would actually be contrary to the rest of Scripture. First, don't demonize all earthly things. Second, remember God loves his creation. Third, it is possible to appreciate the created while still rejecting the worldly. It's possible to appreciate the created while still rejecting the worldly. Now, what I mean by that is this. Take, go back to our uh, sports there. It is possible for us to love and appreciate the talent that someone else has. And that particular person may stand for everything that is contrary to God. But we can learn from and appreciate what came from them. We can actually become a better basketball player by learning how it is that they play basketball. It's true of the world of arts as well. If you're a drummer, it's probably a good idea to learn a few things from John Bottom or Neil Peart. Led Zeppelin and Rush. To my knowledge, neither one of those claim to be believers and followers of Christ. I don't know. God knows their hearts. Not I don't. But, but I know this. They have a tremendous talent that you can learn from. doesn't mean you have to endorse everything that they stand for. It's possible to appreciate and still reject. So, the world. What is he referring to specifically in 1 John chapter 2? John says many things about the world. I'm only going to focus in on the Apostle John. And we could use Paul's language as well. Peter refers to it. But I'm only going to focus in on what John says. He says a lot of things about the world in his Gospel of John as well as the Epistles of John. 
In John, uh, 1 John 5, 19, John 14, 30, and John 16, 11, he says that the world is under the power and the rule of the evil one who is the devil. The world is under God's judgment in John 9, 39 and John 12, 11. The world lies in spiritual darkness in John 12, 46. In 1 John 3, 1, the world does not recognize and acknowledge God as being God. Later on in the same chapter, verse 13, the world hates the followers of Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, the first six verses, he says that the world is filled with false prophets, is the home of the Antichrist and the evil one. The world listens to them all and rejects the message of the prophets as they teach the truth. It's no wonder then that John writes in 1 John 2, 2 and in 1 John 4, 14 that Christ's death was necessary so that he might save the world from her sins. John 3, 16, Jesus died for the world. The people in the world Jesus died for, the system of the world, he's not even gonna renew that. It's gonna be done away with. It's gonna be gone. So let me give you a definition of the world and uh, it's, not, it's not the only definition. It's certainly not the best definition, but it is going to be our definition because I came up with it. John refers to the world as all human ethics, morality, values, beliefs, and affections that are applied to individuals, groups, or systems that are divorced from God in opposition to him. I'll say it again. All human ethics, morality, values, beliefs, and affections that are applied to individuals, groups, or systems that are divorced from God and in opposition to him. Now, here's the reason I came up with that ridiculously long, unhelpful definition. It's because we have to see, at the end of the day, it comes down to what we think, what we feel, what we value, what we pursue, what we chase. Let me give you a better way to say this. The Tyndall Bible Dictionary says it's the world order as alienated from God in rebellion against him and condemned for its godliness. Let me give you an even simpler way to say it. You ready? The approach to life absent from Christ. Any approach that we have to life that is absent specifically of Jesus is of the world, which includes all other religions, it includes all other morality. Whatever we have that is separated or divorced from Christ is of the world. And John says, do not love the world. Why? Because you only have one life. Do not waste it chasing on something that's not going to last, something that will never provide for you what it is that you hope it will provide. And in your chase of that world, as far as you go here, you will drag others in this direction to the same level of hopelessness. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Instead, submit to God. And you may not ever find what you want specifically in this life, but oh, the life to come. You will hear, well done. 1 John, verse 2, let me just real quickly. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
what he is saying is this, is that we do not have a heart that can be divided. It cannot exist that we walk with this in the world and we walk with this with God. It doesn't happen. It is not true. It's a lie. The evil one wants us to believe that we can do this. We can't. According to the scriptures, one will push out the other. Love for the world pushes out love for God. Love for God pushes out love for the world. The world, in one sense, that which is separated from Christ, is easy for us to not love when we understand the evil that's out there. So, for example, ISIS. That's evil. It's devoid from God. It's not a part of the work of Christ. It's easy to hate that. It's easy to hate human trafficking. It's easy to hate abuse. It's easy to hate the things that are obviously evil. What's far more difficult is when we get enticed because the emotions get tied in, when something seems so good, but it is just as evil. I know right now that some of you in here are contemplating meeting up with her later on so that you can enter into a physical relationship with her and she's not your wife. And it seems so right. It seems so okay. I mean, surely God's just going to overlook this. Don't do it. You're contemplating leaving him. You're thinking about ending the marriage and you have no biblical grounds for it, but it is hell at home and you just want relief from that. And you're thinking, if I can just get out, and I know the scriptures don't say anything about it, but I just want out. It seems so right. Don't do it. It will end in misery for you. You're contemplating, I've got it just to get some of these bills paid and I know that I don't have the money that's coming in and so I know I've got some slush fund here with my expense account at work and I could probably create some receipts and make it such that I can spend it towards a personal way. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? Don't do it. It's easy when the evil out there is apparent. It's far more difficult when our heartstrings get pulled in, when it's either us or a family member that begins walking down a road that is clearly in violation of what God has said. Don't love the world. I think he's also referring, though, to the fact that it's not just the evil things or the things that are still evil but may not have the appearance of it. But what about those good things that are approached to those good things as I'm trying to gain my identity from it, who I am, my existence, I'm trying to be satisfied by it. Those are the things that become very difficult for us as well. One of the saddest interviews I've read in many, many years was in ESPN, the magazine, when it came out with Michael Jordan at age 50. I think Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player on the planet. I love to tell my children, LeBron can't hold a candle to Michael Jordan. In that interview with ESPN, the magazine, he openly, readily confessed he does not know who he is outside of playing on the basketball court. And he's miserable. Why? Because basketball is evil? No. But because when I get my identity and I am defined by that, it ends up empty. What is your idol? You probably don't have the skill for it to be basketball. 
You probably don't have the skill for it to be some other professional sport. Is it your children? You know what my greatest idol is? Two things. Without a doubt, hands down. I was talking with another pastor this week about it. My two idols that I struggle with over and over again are my children and ministry. And as long as my children are doing well, I'm doing well. As long as ministry is going well, I'm doing well. But when I hit a place where both of those things seem to be amiss, I I don't know who I am. Do not love the world or anything in the world because our pursuit of the world, our pursuit of that idol leads us to a place now What he tells us is this, that there are some times in which we as believers will begin to step over in this world. This is called sin. It happens to me every day. What he's not referring to is the person who stumbles into this, even if it's intentionally. He's referring to the person whose life is directed by this. Life is defined by things. So very quickly, the desires of the flesh here in verse 16 is the overarching category, meaning the cravings of that which is coming from the sinful nature. And the desires of the eye, that which I can see, that which I want to possess, that which I want to own, that which I covet is what he's referring to here. And then also the pride of life, meaning my accumulation of things, my accomplishment, et cetera, when I'm getting my identity. That's what he's referring to here. These things are not from the Father, he says, but from the world. And then he says, the world is passing away along with his desires, and whoever does the will of God abides forever. He turns the corner right there at the end. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here's the command. Do not love the world. But what do we do? Real quickly, turn over to James chapter 4. And I'll begin picking up in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will will exalt you. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. It means this. God, you control the shots. The way that we don't love the world is by submitting ourselves to God. It's not by working harder. It's not by developing a little list and saying, I'm not going to love the world. I'm not going to love the world. I'm not going to love the world. You're going to love the world. It's what comes naturally to you and to me. I don't have to try to love the world. I automatically love the world. I have to submit myself before God and say, oh, God, you got to change my heart. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Powerful words here. Flee temptation. Run from temptation, he says in James. But he says, resist the devil. Stand firm. When the evil one is speaking to you, when he grabs a megaphone and speaks into your mind, whether it's truths, Uh, whether it's it's lies about you or lies about the system or whatever, resist him. And the way that you resist him comes in the verse right after it, by drawing near to God. I know what it's like to hear the voice of the evil one and to be so bamboozled that you can't see, smell, or taste truth. 
in those moments, step forward in your anxiety, step forward in your confusion, step forward in your pain, step forward and say, God, please draw near to me. He may tarry, but he will come. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you hearts, you double-minded. He's referring to confession and repentance right here. Be wretched and weep and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. All of that is tied into confession and repentance. And then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I've asked Kurt Cloninger if he would come and illustrate this for us, but I want to give you just very quickly a few points of application. If you find yourself today in a position that you are loving the world I would ask you, please, examine yourself. Examine yourself as to whether or not you really are inside of the faith. Because what I was talking about earlier in terms of being used by God, being put on display, one life counting for him, if there wasn't something stirring in your soul, not because a communicator said it from the stage, but because the truthfulness of it, if there wasn't something stirring, I would say, you may not be in the faith. If you find yourself longing for the world, wanting that more than anything else, please examine, are you even in the faith? If you are in the faith and you find yourself flirting with it, repent. Secondly, remember that Jesus is praying for his children. John 17, Jesus says, I'm asking, Lord, not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one in the world. Jesus at this moment, is praying for you to reject worldliness, for you to live, to thrive in this environment. He is praying for you, and his prayers are effectual. And then lastly, read, meditate on, and apply the scriptures. In that same chapter in John 17, Jesus says, your word is truth, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Read it. Meditate on it and ask God for help to apply it. Why can we do all this? Because Jesus lived a life that was not in this world and also in this one right here. Jesus walked the straight and narrow. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He did what Adam was sent to do, and that's to live a Godward life focused in on the glory and the goodness of God, receiving satisfaction, joy, identity, all of it from the Father above. But we wrecked that. And Jesus came to the earth and lived that life, gave us not just the model, but then said to us, I'm going to leave you and it's better because I'm going to send my spirit. And when my spirit comes, he's going to empower you to love not the world, but to love the Father. Jesus frees us from the love of the world and a love to the Father. You want your life to count? That's Kurt if he would come and share. Turn your attention there. I uh, I make these things wooden bowls. I turn them on a lathe. I shape them with uh, gouging tools. I, usually, I turn them with enough heft so I can carve on them. I have figures, patterns, words. I got part of Psalm 100 on this one. Enters gates with thanksgiving, its courts with praise. Gives thanks to him. Bless his name. 
You know what I like about, uh, about making these things? I make a lot of them. I made hundreds of these things. People buy them, pass them on to their kids, collect them, grandkids. I sell them for a lot of money. That's one of the things I like about making these things. The other is uh, usually the wood I use to make these bowls is wood that nobody else wants. That's too cross-grained for lumber. It's too splintered to split for firewood. It's, it's, it's useless. That's useless to everybody else. That's wood I want because I turn it into a work of art. Now, if I, was, if I was a preacher, I suppose I could make a sermon out of that. I'm not, and I won't. This one, uh, this one's nice. Alligator bone I worked into the top here. I'm not anywhere near finishing this thing. It's got a lot of carving left to do on it. I'm taking my time with it. I'm in no hurry. Commission. It's uh, this guy. He knocks on the door of my shop. I had my uh, headphones on. I was listening to music. I had a big oak burl on the lathe. And, and uh, he knocks on the door. I didn't hear him. He, he walks in my shop, taps me on the shoulder. <laughs> Scared the bejeebers out of me. I turned everything off. And I looked at him. I said, buddy, don't you know not to sneak up on somebody that's got a sharp tool in his hand? He laughed. He said, I, I hear you make bowls. I said, yeah, well, look around you. Showed him my lathe, showed him my sanders, my buffers, and I took him in my little room where I, I do my detail work, my carving, and uh, then I took him in the house. I showed him a bunch of finished bowls. He particularly liked the ones that, uh, that had the carving, the filigree on it. He says to me, he says, you do commissions all the time. Would you do one for me for a price, I said. He said, money's no object. And then he tells me, he got a big oak tree down in his yard with, a, with a, a big root ball that's exposed. Can I come over and look at it? So I get over there the next day, and uh, it's, a, oh, it's, a, it's an interesting root ball. It's all twisted. And I show him where, where it needs to be cut, you know, where I get, get the perfect piece for a bowl. And, and he says, well, I'll get my tree removal guys to cut it and just deliver it to your shop. And I'm thinking, I like this guy already. Didn't even have to fire up my chainsaw. A couple of mornings later, the root ball shows up. And that afternoon, the guy sneaks up on me again. And uh, he says, you got a minute to talk about my bowl. I said, I got nothing but time. You want coffee? So we, uh, we sit on the, on the stoop of my shop, sipping coffee, looking out at the birds on my feeders. I can tell he's not in any hurry. I'm not in any hurry. And I say to him, tell, tell, me, tell me about your bowl. What do you want on it? And he doesn't say anything for a second. He says, well, I, there's a few words I want on it. I know that. Other than that, I'm not sure. I said, so what are the words you want on it? He said, I'm not ready to tell you that yet. Suit yourself. So we sit there. There's a bunch of finches on my feeder. We're watching the finches. And then this guy, his name's Bob. He's a young guy. Well, he's younger than I am anyway. He's 42. He, uh, real slow, real humbly, 
he starts to talk. Tell me his story. Tell me his life. He says uh, he grew up in South Louisiana. He said by the time he was 30, he had made and lost a huge pile of money, developed a drinking problem, divorced a wife. He kind of stops for a minute, and he says, you know, when I was 32, I had a motorcycle wreck. Nearly killed me. Tells me he spent a whole lot of time in the hospital and in rehab, trying to, you know, get better, trying to kind of figure out his life. And then he stops talking. Watches the finches. And he said, you know, there was this physical therapist in rehab, and she was a Jesus person. That's what he called her, a Jesus person. He said she was tough. But she made me think about stuff, and she made me wonder if there was more to all this, all this stuff that I've been chasing all that time. Started We sat there a little while more, and I said, you know, you're from Louisiana. Maybe I could put some gators on your bowl. He kind of smiled. He said, I'd like that. I said, so uh, what are the words? And he said, oh, it's just a couple of lines. And then he got real quiet. And he looked out like he was seeing something past the goldfinches. I mean like with a laser focus. And he says real soft, can you make a lid for that bowl? I said, I sure can. I make it fit snug. Well, I was curious by then. I said, uh, what are you going to do with this bowl? He said, I'm going in it. But what's left of me? And he turned and he looked me right in the eye and he said, with no fear whatsoever, I got brain cancer. The doc says I got a year, but I think he's being real nice. I'm just getting my ducks in a row. This is one of my ducks. And then he kind of gives me this shy smile. He says, maybe some ducks would be nice on that bow. Can you do ducks? With the best of them. He looked at the birds a little while more, and I'm thinking, this is a man that I would very much like to get to know. So I said to him, I tell you what, Bob, why don't you come by here once in a while? We'll drink coffee and talk about your bowl. And when you're ready, you can tell me those words. He said, I'd like that. You got nothing but time. He laughed, and I didn't. He, uh, he came by every week, Bob. We got to be friends. We got to be good friends. We drank coffee and talked about gators, ducks, Jesus, life, what was important. I finally got the words. It came to me in a card along with a check. Only one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
You know, if I was a preacher, I'd put that into a sermon. <laughs> but I'm not, and I won't. I'll just, uh, I'll just put it on this bowl, along with some ducks and some gators. Do not love the world. Instead, submit yourselves to God. And trust him that you will get to the end of your life and you will fulfill your purpose in your generation. Because the eyes of the Lord go to and fro, searching for those whose heart is fully devoted to him. As Charles Stanley said, he is fully prepared to take full responsibility for the life that's given to him. Heavenly Father, thank you for what it is that you have done, who you are, your character, your integrity, your plan. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did for us that we could never do for ourselves. And so what I'm asking now that you would give us the supernatural strength and power to simply draw near to you, to stand in awe of you and what you have done. Remind us of your words as you sing over us. Lord, open our ears to hear. So I pray that our love for you would increase by your power and our love for the world would be pushed aside. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.